welcome to What Goes Around podcast. My name is Anne Frankenstein. And I'm Eamon Murtagh. And on today's show, we start off by um, discussing a little bit of tragic news that Eamon has just received, which interferes, which interferes with his, uh, his big old leaving party he was planning before his big old move to Bristol. Yeah, and then we will also be taking a, a, a little gondola downstream of Memory Lane, if Memory Lane was flooded, perhaps. Um, I don't know what I'm talking about. That. <laughs> that was a beautiful We're, analogy. Yeah, well, I, we'll talk about the glory days of working in a record shop and how, somehow, I ended up, via this podcast, back behind the counter. We will also be chatting to the musical polymath. I'm sure I've used that phrase before, but it's no more applicable. <laughs> All right. It's no more applicable than ever before. Uh, than for the guest who'll be sharing his phonographic memories with us today. I'm speaking about the musical genius that is Nidin Sonny. So, shall we get into it? Let's pod like we never podded before. Sounds good to me. We always sound like that, though, don't we? we? Do. So, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, musical polymath, pal of mine. Let's do this thing. <laughs> Eamon Murda, Londoner and soon to be Bristolian. What goes around in your world? Well, as you can imagine, I am right at the sharp end of Packing Mountain. Uh, everything in the world is being put into boxes. My life is is slowly. It's kind of weird, you know, you just, it's like a, like a big jumper and you pull the thread at the end and you see all unraveling. And then you've just got this pile of stuff and you think, that's me, that's me. And I'm unknitted now. That's so strange. That's part of the deep hell of moving is having to really look at everything you've accumulated in the face and just thinking, is this my life in box form? My life is a box. And and it's been, you know, because it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Um, and I'm like, I had to say goodbye to a load of venues that I used to play at that I only just Ooh. got back to, of course, because the old Rona and that. Um, and that was um, that was a bit of a tearjerker. I said goodbye to the Miller, which is kind of like where it really started for mm-hmm. me. Really, like, started doing a regular thing again and got back into DJing in a big way. And that, that they were just wonderful people. So it was, it was lovely to see them again. It was nice to say goodbye. At least I got a chance to to go there and play before it was all over. And I've been doing a few other things and, you know, just, you know, you just start to realise, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do the other again. And then the final blow for the for the strangeness happened just, well, perhaps 25 minutes ago in that. (laughs) Right. Get this. So I've got my um, my leaving party on Friday Mm -hmm. at the hops. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to it very much for quite a while now. And I'm going to have to cancel it. <gasps> Did you get pinged? Frida got the runner. She's, she's got it. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. Well, we just we've had a little positive test, so um a little positive test. Like, so you're know, trying to diminish the impact of, of it. It's kind of like faint. I mean, she's fine, don't worry about her. She's she's doing great and she's all good. And when myself and my partner are both clear it seems mm. but we're gonna have to hunker down for 10 days i guess and that means no goodbye party <laughs> oh no that's such a shame i can't believe it i was getting my um 
my second uh, my second jab the day of what was going to be a goodbye party i was looking forward yeah. to feeling fully safe and immune but it turns out you're a vector is that the word um, i think I, I, apparently i might be well i'm not yeah i mean I'm, apparently i'm still clean but um mm. i don't know with a with a small child running around with it I, i'm gonna have to just stay inside and do the sensible thing which is a real crapper because you know the rona's already stolen my 50th birthday and now it's, <laughs> it's taken away my goodbye bye but i tell you what I'll be back. I'll be back and we'll, we'll just do it another day. Exactly. I mean, this is the the thing, I suppose. Uh, lockdown should have taught us how to learn just some other way of being able to celebrate aside from yeah. a party. What other way can you celebrate? Is there another way to, to say goodbye in a meaningful way? Oh, it's just heavy drinking alone in the room. <laughs> <laughs> you sound thoroughly miserable about this this i've never uh, i haven't heard your voice sound this sad well, in I a long I time i hadn't expected to to talk about this but it literally found out like five minutes before we go on air so i just went oh, oh well when you say what's going around i mean like listen it wasn't even in the charts but it's number one with a bullet all the time <laughs> so i'm gonna have god to... it's the macarena all over again i hope it doesn't hang around that long <laughs> Oh, well, these things are said to try us, aren't they? So, <laughs> well, listen, house party in Bristol. How about, oh, what about an old-timey rave just for oh, old time's good. sake? I want to see great, great raves in Bristol and Bath. Ooh, a, well, this know, is, Circus yeah. Warp, hardcore, you know the score. If we could probably do a <laughs> that sounds terrifying, but I would come and join you for that <laughs> if it if it meant something to you. Well, once I'm in the all clear, um, because I'm still planning to come back to London and DJ because, you know, otherwise I'll just be sat on my own in a room in Bristol thinking, where's my life gone? <laughs> so I'm coming Surrounded back. Surrounded by all your things. <laughs> all my things that have unraveled. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm still going to come up and play some of the some of the bigger places I play. Oh, I, I need to go and play the hops goodbye. I mean, that's yeah. crazy. So if I can't do it this time, I'll do it next time. Say yeah. la vie. And, you know, I'm going to be popping up every now and again to do the odd gig. So it'll it'll be OK. But, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a damp squib. Are you thinking now, because we've spoken a lot on this podcast about things that are difficult about living in London, like the people mm. and the awfulness and the stink the and the stress and the traveling and just everyone's such an arsehole, all of that kind of thing. <laughs> are you getting sentimental now about London? Are you sort of seeing it with rose tinted glasses now that you're leaving? Well, um, I probably was until till this news hit. And now I'm just thinking too many people too close. Ah, <laughs> damn them all. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Yeah, no, it's, true. it's their fault. There's been a few things that I've, I've decided I'm going to I'm going to jolly well miss, you know, and there's certainly, you know, places and people I would jolly well miss. But there comes a point when you've just, you know, you've you're either on the bus or off the bus and I'm fully on the bus. So doot, doot, let's go. Let's See you go. then. See ya. <laughs> I'll just stay here. Don't worry about it. Well, me. this is the good thing. The good thing is I can take you with me, Anne. We won't stop, will we? Because we're we're not actually the type. We haven't really been in a room together to record one of these hardly <laughs> at all since about the fourth one. So, well, that's know. true. I came down to see you at a gig because the the hops is just down the road mm. from me, and I popped down to say hello there the other day. And it was very strange to have a conversation with you without a microphone being on. I was like, <laughs> do I need to project my voice? Do I need to try and say? something interesting or can i just be my boring <laughs> self yeah yeah it's a bit of a strange one but never mind <laughs> listen that was very nice to see you i would add and i no, was looking well. forward to seeing you again on friday yeah 
you do a double shift for me and, you know, rep again. So I was really, you know, proud of you yeah, for that. Yeah, I was looking forward to it as well. Well, you got the night off now. You can do it you like. <laughs> well, I was, but like I say, I'm getting my second job. So who knows what could happen? Yeah, I mean, probably feel I'm, like shit. I'm pretty robust. Yeah. You know, I'm quite young and vital. And uh, obviously, I'm only getting my second job now. So I'm basically a baby. So I was expecting to be able to power through and come and see and have a dance and everything. But yeah, it wasn't to be. So uh, make that rave happen. Listen, if you can, if you can like drag a sofa from somewhere and just put it somewhere on the outskirts of the rave, then I'll guarantee that I can come. If there's somewhere to sit down, then uh, I'll be there. Sofa possum. Anne Frankenstein, friend of mine, please tell me what goes on in your tiny brain. <laughs> the size of a walnut. Um, you and I have both, have both reminisced at length about our times working in record stores. You oh, yes. at various places, me at Flashback in Shoreditch, where I was probably the worst staff member they ever had, to be fair. I was really nice to people, but I was very lazy. And I didn't really do much work and uh, I didn't last long. But it's like a formative experience that I think if you're a record lover, you you kind of go through yeah. and enjoy. But you have come full circle because you have recently stepped back into that role of uh, uh, record yeah, label. Yeah. No, record store um, behind the desk server man. It's actually all thanks to what goes around podcasts that happened. Mm, because, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. That's very nice. Now, so uh, basically, I... Um, I, I mean, I do love record shops. The happiest time of my life, really, was back in the rave days when I was in charge of the rave section in the record shop. And I, I felt like I had, like, you know, I'd, I'd opened this portal to another world. I love that. Pre-wife, pre-kids. Yeah. <laughs> happiest time of my life amazing. working in well, a record shop. Yeah, yeah, I didn't mean it like that. But <laughs> <laughs> what I meant was that, uh, you know, I was surrounded by records and um, and uh, there was lots of new stuff coming out. And it was a very exciting place to be. And then... Um, so when I did the uh, chat with uh, the mighty Zaff from Love Vinyl about Go-Go Records, so we got on very well, and I hung around for a little while, and, and, and we just we just shot the breeze and talked for about two or three hours as I was wandering around having a little dig in the shop. And then a couple of days later, he phoned me because, lo and behold, poor Zaff got the Rona. Oh, dear. Yeah. And so he was then laid low, and uh, the people oh the guy he normally got into the shop to to look after the shop was uh, a lithuanian guy i think anyway he'd gone back home so he was away and, and suddenly he had no one to cover and he said like look i know i kind of only just really got to know you but what are you doing Thursday? <laughs> <laughs> and i i just thought well yeah i, I love record shops why not so, um, so I said yes, and I, I did. A, I did a few shifts in in Love Vinyl, and it was very, very interesting indeed. How did it compare to your formative experiences of working in a record shop? Well, it went uh, very different times. I mean, back in the day, it was um, it was moving at a million miles an hour. You know, the, the, these records would come in, and there would be a queue of people to buy them. You know, the moment they arrived, when the when the import order arrived. Or when the when the white label box came from Southern Distribution or Pinnacle or wherever it was, it might come from Moe's Music Machine. You'd open up that box and you'd look up across the counter, and there would be a line of twenty junglists with their arms crossed, going, "What we got? What we got, mate? What we got?" Um, so that was, you know, that was really fast and furious in those days. And uh, this is a much more sedate thing because mm. it's kind of 
post-pandemic, people are still a bit wary coming out. Do you know what I mean? It was quite, so it's quite quiet. But what was fabulous about it is, of course, I then got a, a, basically an eight-hour dig in the shop. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is fab. So uh, I, I didn't get paid in money. Essentially, it was a loss-making exercise for me. <laughs> so I just got, I went in there and um, I had all this time and I went through all the racks and anything that said great or good or this is killer, I pulled that out and I played that and then I, I made a big pile by the end of it. And I think the first day I made a loss of about 45 quid. Zaf <laughs> <laughs> knew what he was doing. He's making commission off I you. Know, I know. I went back and, and pretty much did the same again and again. Um but it was lovely, do you know what I mean? Because there is something uh, just fabulous about rolling around like a like a, uh, a heavy pig in, <laughs> in the trough of music. It was just great again. And also, you know, it's been a long time. It's been like 30 years since I last worked in a record shop. Yeah. And uh, it was still quite good fun chatting to the customers, you know. like There were, there were some nice, interesting people. And one of the, the lovely things about working in a record shop is... Um, quite shy people come alive in those mm. situations like there was a, a kid that came in and he was you know nervous like even the, the way he walked was kind of nervous he looked like he was like you know sort of looking over his shoulder every third step or whatever but then when he started getting into his tunes he was like oh yeah i love this one like, you know you can see his face light up and he started talking about this hip-hop thing that he'd been doing and that how he really wanted to you know get a collection and and, and really you know dj an old school way and all this and that was just it's kind of heartwarming because that that was you and me back in the day when you yeah. found found that little faucet and turned it on and went oh my god when I'm yeah. doing this I feel empowered I feel alive yeah and I think it's really nice like one of the things that I enjoyed most about working in a record store was like even after I'd been DJing for like 10 years, I found record stores occasionally quite intimidating places to be. You almost had to walk in mm. there and prove that you deserve to be there in some way. I'm conscious of the fact that they can be really intimidating spaces. And so when I was working in one, I just made it my business to make sure I made people feel like it was an accessible place. Even if you were like, come, you know, like, like for example, people would come in and, uh, you know, there'd be records out on the racks marked good, which to a layman, <laughs> obviously you think, oh, it's good. That's, That's good. good one, yeah. But like they bring it up to the desk and I'll be like, let me explain <laughs> if you want to actually listen to this. <laughs> this one's excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Good is good. Excellent <laughs> is excellent. Um, um, I'm confused about mint. What's, what, what's yeah, 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 that? exactly. And mint is somehow the best. But, you know, stuff like that, that like you wouldn't necessarily know if it was your first you know, a, a, an early experience of being in a record store, like people coming in, being intimidated by the fact that it's kind of like, you know, a shortage record yeah. store full of people, you know, with tattoos playing fucking Dead Kennedys really loudly over the stereo and whatever. So I always tried to make it my business to kind of make people feel welcome and have a chat with them, even if they didn't want to chat to me, because that's <laughs> basically, that's my forte, that's forcing people to out. chat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, that, that, good on you, because that was always the way I felt about it as well, because, you know, I've, I, I mean, I, I still occasionally I'll go into one of the, the trendier emporiums and just, I don't know, maybe it's just paranoia, but sometimes you just think, oh, God, am I just making a dick of myself? Um, and actually, it's quite funny, on the, on the last day I was, I was working there, there was like a big pile of records that hadn't been, you know, put through the system yet, and they were just 
they're mostly hip hop things. And it's flicking through them and cleaning them up for for Jake, and uh, and just but trying to get everything nice and, and ship shape for him. And then I noticed there was um, a Justin Timberlake record. Do you know that Justified album? Yeah. Now this is you know this is cool love vinyl, Hoxton disco emporium, house music, you know all the coolest stuff in the world. But I love that song Rock Your Body. Like, <laughs> I've got that on 12 inch I have from have back you? in the day I bought it when it came out it was See, you yeah. can't get them on record it's really hard to find them on record I was is it worth money don't this. tell me that well the album was was listed at over 40 quid on <gasps> this one, so oh but you know little chat to Jake and I, you know I, I got it for 20 quid in the end um but, but the the look on his face when I pointed at that one he was like really <laughs> <laughs> that's what like, makes it cool though do you know what I mean yeah well, you make I it cool so. And, you know, I played it the other week and it went, everyone went crazy for yeah, it. Yeah, of course so, they did. Know, yeah, of course exactly. they did. Yeah, I mean, this just makes me laugh, the idea that you would ever feel like you would walk into a record store and feel like you don't belong there. I feel like if anyone looks like they were born <laughs> in a record store, it is you. Well, actually, you know, I was in Love Vinyl a couple of years back and there was someone taking photographs and he was like, oh, do you mind if I take photographs? And I was like, oh, I don't shit. And be like... And what I didn't realise is I'd just given tacit permission to be his stock photograph model. This photograph got taken of me and I didn't think of it for like, I don't know, a year or two years at least. And then suddenly, someone like sent me an Instagram first thing in the morning. I'm like really bleary eyed. He goes, man, you're in the independent. And I was like, what? <laughs> Record store man. There was me in the middle of the independent newspaper, um, you know, with me big, big beard stuck in a pile of records just like leafing through and that that was it I was all over the all over the press again it was very exciting but I, I wasn't really prepared for it and then then someone just pointed out he goes you, you know what that means I was like no and he goes this means you're the archetypal hipster you're like <laughs> you're like vinyl dude you're like you're like the sticker that they put on the outside of a of a shop scene this type of person shops here you know so yeah a bit weird I love being back in the record shop and I, I, I still I still prefer going into a shop and finding something by accident than knowing what I want and clicking on it online. Uh, me too. Me too. Yeah. Those happy accidents are what dreams are made of. Yeah, well, anyway, I decided that um, I better not go back full time behind the shop counter because I was just losing so much money. <laughs> <laughs> Helping the economy, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am I'm single-handedly turning this ship around. <laughs> what we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Name that tune. So we're used to having polymaths on this show, but our next guest may take the cake entirely. A musician fluid in many genres, from classical to flamenco to jazz on several instruments, including piano, guitar and sitar. A composer for film and TV and advertising for some of the biggest names you can think of. He's also written stage shows, acted himself, including comedic turns on the BBC. He's DJed prolifically too at some huge venues, perhaps most notably as a regular at Fabric. Presents his own radio show on BBC Two. And uh, as I mentioned, releases his own incredible genre-bending music, some of which we'll talk about today. He's put out 20 studio albums so far. He's done all of this on probably... 
the largest scale imaginable and picked up many awards and nominations along the way, including for MOBO, BAFTA and uh, an Ivor Novello Lifetime Achievement Award. I barely scratched the surface here. Today he is here to share his phonographic memories, Nidin Sawney, CBE. What an honour to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for that very nice introduction. <laughs> I, felt, I felt my voice getting more and more outraged. <laughs> well, well the, one, the one thing I can uh, assure you is that I, my sitar playing is not so good these days. It was when I was, uh, when I was quite young that I was uh, playing more sitar, so I'm not so, so good on the sitar. I'm sure you're a lot better than myself and most people listening. <laughs> to be fair, I had to drop that in there. The flamenco is still up to scratch, though. I heard you. Uh, yeah, I do. I do play quite a bit of that. <laughs> so obviously, we're we're here to dig into your phonographic memories. But I want to start first of all. We're interested in talking about your musical background and how you managed to uh, sprawl out in so many different directions in terms of your career. Where do you get the confidence to try your hand at so many different things? Do you just find you're naturally good at everything you try? Is there something in your upbringing that made you confident enough to just give things a go where does that come from well I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm naturally good at um, anything really but I <laughs> but I, I enjoy playing instruments and I, I guess since I was very young uh, since I was about five years old I was playing the piano so I studied classical piano first and then got into a whole load of other things I mean I, it was more into the different genres of music so I I got into flamenco guitar when I was um, about eight years old and uh, and and then started to uh, you know listening to one of my uh, one of the records in my dad's collection, and then from there on I just kind of you know I was I was playing jazz piano I I played uh, with a youth orchestra um, as a pianist I I played uh, uh, in a funk band a jazz quartet um, I joined a punk band I was in a rock band I was playing Van Halen guitar solos in one of them I was doing all <laughs> kinds of stuff so. So I was kind of um, just just playing music, and obviously I got into Indian classical music as well, uh, with um, studying a bit of tabla and some sitar, as you as you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, I, I just was into music from a very young age. I, I think it's just it was my natural communication and expression kind of form uh, more than speaking was. I kind of felt more of an affinity with uh, music as a way of getting emotions out and I think um, I, I've always and, and as a film composer I still think it's very much the language of emotion um, you know music can be put to anything as well you know you can put it to theatre to film to dance to whatever and I think in that respect it's um, it's actually probably the most versatile art form there is. I find that really interesting when you, uh, you know, j just hearing you describe it in that way as a form of communication. I think there are so many people who grow up to have careers in music who maybe pick up an instrument as an extension of their ego or to prove something about themselves or to establish, you know, show the world some part of their identity. But it sounds like for you, it was just something that made you feel more comfortable in the world i mean were you a were you a shy kid is that why you were drawn towards music as a form of expression yeah i was definitely a shy kid i mean i, I think one of the other things was i was the only asian kid in my whole area so uh. Uh, so i kind of always felt quite isolated and and i kind of think um and you know there was a lot of racism at that time so i kind of i i saw music as a sanctuary as a kind of safe place and in, when I say it was communication, it's probably more cathartic and more expressive than anything. Mm. So I was, I was kind of finding that music just felt very natural. Um, you know that it, that it kind of um, it, it allowed me to have um, conversations with 
myself and with and and with I, I i guess i mean some people it's kind of pretentious to say in one way but it's kind of the idea of music to me is about communing with the universe and you kind of not not necessarily in any kind of religious way or anything like that but in a in a kind of feel way i i always thought it was amazing when you could just let go on the piano or the guitar and just um stuff would just come to you and it would be amazing to watch your fingers flowing or or kind of dancing through ideas and i i just think that that's the most beautiful thing i always felt that when i was growing up yeah i'm always interested in people who um, don't feel tied to one instrument because there are a lot of um, people who play a specific uh, type of instrument like they might might be the guitarist or, or flute or whatever it might be but quite often they they become very rooted and and that becomes their extension of of themselves at these and i always find it interesting people who seem to find it easy to flow and find different aspects of themselves through different instruments did that kind of ability to pick things up and and work through and be able to play them did that did each of those instruments did they they bring something else out in you or is it the same thing in just a different form no i think i think you you respond to different things um in different ways i mean i i for example i would add to that um yeah i would add to my repertoire of instruments i would say um, the computer is an instrument for me mm-hmm. um, and and so is an orchestra you know an orchestra feels like an instrument to me and that i can I can hear an orchestral score um, in my head and i can I can orchestrate it and work that way um, so it's kind of it 's an extension of your voice an extension of your feelings and I kind of think that um, you know it 's um, yeah i mean I, I I just love the idea of thinking. Uh, in in sound and um and i think you know not even being confined necessarily to uh to traditional ways of thinking about what music is um you know sometimes you create soundscapes especially if you're working with film you sometimes want to integrate with the soundtrack they have to the film itself so even if you have the sound of birds or or the ocean and so on um or or people even talking you try to find a timbre um, in the music and in the instrumentation or orchestration that kind of reflects that. So I kind of think that music has, you can approach it from so many different angles. And, um, and I think in some ways you actually, you know, one of the interesting things was losing my ego in relation to being an instrumentalist. So, you know, I grew up as a pianist and I was always trying to play flashy pieces and I was thinking, okay, I want to play Chopin, I want to play Rachmaninoff, I want to play you know, um, complex jazz and so on. And I think sometimes, I mean, later on when I got into, particularly into making my own albums and, and writing for films and television and so on, it's about letting go of all the, of that and, and thinking what's the most appropriate way to actually say something or to or to put, put an idea out there or a feeling out there. And um, that's why, you know, a lot of the people that I admire as musicians or singers were people who were quite minimalistic in the way that they thought about um, improvisation or performance. It was more about the feeling than anything. That's always impressive to me, just that idea of being able to let go of of ego and sort of fully express yourself. Uh, One of the things that Eamon and I talk about a lot on this podcast or have talked about, certainly when we were growing up, you know, with, with music, we both listen to all kinds of stuff, but like in terms of like how you dress and all of that stuff, music is so... And specific genres are tied up so much in your identity and how you present yourself and all of that kind of thing. I mean, when you were a teenager and growing up and expressing yourself musically in all these different types of bands 
and then DJing like did you feel obliged to represent yourself in your clothes in some way like playing rock music playing punk music or DJing at fabric I guess I'm asking how did you dress when you were a teenager was that an extension of your musical taste well that's interesting I mean I kind of think um yeah, looking at some of the pictures of me as a teenager, I, I, I wonder what the hell was going through my head. But, uh, <laughs> we all wonder that. that better yeah, that's, that's totally standard. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I suppose, um, yeah, I mean, you know, as you grow into yourself, you know, you, you kind of find your own, your, your own, what, what you feel comfortable with in every respect. And I think that's, that can be about clothes, that can be about what, you know, about about thinking uh, around what, what you feel comfortable wearing. But I, I, I guess, you know, if I was a, if I was at fabric, it'd be a very different type of thing to, you know, when I was a teenager wearing, uh, 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 performing in a, in a rock band or something like that. But yeah, I, it's it's fascinating. I've had this conversation before with um, uh, with Tim Burgess and uh, Sim, uh, Simone Marie uh, from um, uh, Primal Scream. Yeah. Um, mm. I remember talking to them about all of this, and um, you know, they were talking about David Bowie. You know, they asked me who who uh, it most impressed me with their with their um, uh, their fashion sense and I said it's probably David Bowie in that he he changed his clothes um, as in he changed the kinds of clothes he'd wear every decade um, and it was fascinating seeing him go through all those different incarnations and I guess you know without thinking about it we all kind of end up wearing you know wearing different clothes according to what we're doing and what we're what we're feeling and who we're hanging out with and where we're going and so on so I guess those things just happen naturally. I didn't really kind of overthink that because I was always, music was always my prime driver. So I was always thinking about the music and the ideas behind it. But yeah, I guess other things also change. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get into talking about your music then because the first phonographic memory you've chosen is a track of your own, one called Homelands. Why did you pick this one? Yeah, I, I suppose it's because it's a, probably the track that more than any other gets across all the different aspects of my own identity um so you know within this track um i remember you know kind of playing around with some flamenco rhythms at one point and kind of um you know and and, and also just playing acoustic guitar and just coming up with a very it's it's got a very kind of um flamenco feel to the chord progression and to the way that works i mean there's also it ends with a with an um uh, an a major flat nine which is kind of you know if you're in d minor it's kind of it's got this very uh flamenco kind of feel about it but then at the same time um as a chord progression but then uh, at the same time it's also got elements of Cavalli in there um Nusrat Fatih Ali, uh, Ali Khan's nephews um I mean Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan is one of my great heroes and um his nephews uh Rizwan Mosen uh group they they actually um two of his nephews they lead that that group in the form of Kavali. Kavali is actually a form of Sufi music um, that originates in Pakistan, um, and I absolutely love that music. And it has a great sound to it. It's very hypnotic and very exciting. And what they're using in this is um, when the, when I recorded them is um, is a technique called sargams, which are actually like do re mi fa so la ti do. Um, it's instead it's sarigama pada nisa. And uh, each of those is uh, denotes a pitch. Um, so in the in a scale, in a given scale, this is a harmonic minor scale, or kirvani in in uh, Hindi, in in the rock system. It's actually, you know, they're singing each of the notes. They're singing the degree um, with it with every syllable that they're singing. So I found that fascinating. And then also there's Nina Miranda singing here, 
um, who's Brazilian, um, she's singing Brazilian Portuguese. Uh, she she was from Brazil originally, and she she became a good friend. People might know her from Smoke City as well. She sung Underwater Love, and she's um, mm. kind of a, an amazing voice, absolutely gorgeous. And um, so she um, she sung that last part um, in Portuguese, and then I I kind of came up with a because I was listening to a lot of Brazilian music at the time, so I I kind of came up with a refrain. Um, you know the you know that's all kind of um, uh, something I was singing at the time to her but it was kind of in um, it, it, it went with that Brazilian flavour so it brought together all these different things I was interested in the rhythms are also kind of Latin but they're also kind of got a touch of an Indian uh, kind of flavour to them as well so everything feels like it comes together plus there's an orchestral element in that I brought together the um, the I think at the time uh, the quartet instrumental who were playing with Four Hero at the time, um, oh, wow. and they came in and uh, and I gave them a string arrangement and they played it beautifully and mm. these strings um, the the string arrangement has worked uh, live really well when we performed it at the Royal Albert Hall and other places it's it's come together really well so this has so many memories for me as a as a track and we performed it in 2019 at the Royal Albert Hall uh, the Financial Times then did a, a piece with it um, lots of people have kind of focused in on this it's been used in uh, in lots of different places um, adverts and adverts and films and so on but it's um, but primarily for me it's an expression of all the different aspects of my own identity that seem to come together in a track sorts of people on on the podcast uh, choosing all sorts of music for all sorts of reasons um and uh I, when you uh mentioned to us that you were going to choose this it's sort of slightly sheepishly we got the message like is it okay if i choose one of my own you know <laughs> and actually you know i think that's wonderful and i i really love that because one of the things you know, this is about the memory as much as the music you know and right. uh one of the things i think is is really interesting to me is how artists continue a relationship with their own music and not many artists are actually very comfortable talking about that. A lot of artists, when they finish a project, they seal it up in a box and they literally don't want to hear it again. So mm -hmm. I'm very interested to see how, how, when you think about when you wrote it and how you are now, 
uh, how how have you changed and and what what sort of memories does it actually bring back on a, on a personal tip of who you were at that time well i i guess i mean you know it was it was written probably back in 97 98 around that kind of time and then it's um the album beyond skin came out in 1999 yeah. um i i think you know it's interesting because we we performed um I performed the entire album um, at the Royal Albert Hall live for the first time, actually, um, in 2019, and um, and then went to perform it uh, around the world as well, in, including Australia. Um, after that, on a tour, but it was it was really interesting revisiting it because I kind mm. of thought, wow, there's a lot of naivety to certain aspects of how I wrote some of the music, but then I really liked that. I responded well to that because I kind of, in a way, I kind of. Um, it was remembering myself and remembering yeah. writing these things in the bedroom, you know, which is what happened with a lot of Beyond Skin. It was just written and even created in a bedroom uh, where I would, uh, I mean, I brought in string players, but they'd be in my living room where I was uh, sharing a flat with other people. And um, they were very kind, <laughs> kind about letting me uh, record in <laughs> e the living room. Sorry, but. EastEnders is off. We've got, <laughs> yeah, got exactly. a string quartet coming <laughs> in at eight. Yeah, <laughs> it was literally like that. I mean, the, that, that flat was hilarious. I mean, we had... Uh, so many interesting people come over to the flat to 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 work with me or do stuff. I mean, Paul McCartney came round and, um, oh, and wow. Sinead O'Connor came round <laughs> and uh, Sharon Nelson, who sung on Massive Attacks, uh, Unfinished Sympathy, she came round. I mean, Jeff Beck, loads of amazing wow. people. I guess the memory of of um, making this track um, of Homelands was was very special because it it encompass so much for me i love the idea of being your flatmate get up what now <laughs> yeah, I know. come on i'm halfway through the latest netflix Who's, who is it this time you know what paul really mccartney funny. Oh, okay the, funny, the funniest thing about that is that um that one of my flatmates actually didn't notice him come down. He did, he, managed to, <laughs> he managed to just carry on working on his computer the whole time. Paul McCartney arrived and left. Wow. So Paul McCartney came down the stairs and, and my friend was actually literally, my one of my flatmates was literally in the living room. And I said... Uh, I said, and I, I remember after Paul McCartney left, I said, I went up to him and said, that was mind-blowing, wasn't it? And he goes, uh, what? He <laughs> 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 didn't know that he'd come round. So I thought that was oh, pretty funny. But... Um, but yeah, no, it was a, it was a, it was quite a funny experience overall. But yeah, very trippy. <laughs> when you have a project like that, where you're you're bringing in all kinds of different people, you know, on on different scales of of fame. I mean, someone like Paul McCartney, obviously a huge name. I mean, how, how do you how do you pitch that to people? How do you get so many people involved? Is it just you know the quality of the work draws them in is it just because you're making something that's so different you think that people are just curious and they they want to get involved or is it just because people want to work with you well well I mean Paul McCartney to be fair wasn't on my album then he he um he asked me if I'd do a remix uh, mm. for him of uh, the fire for the fireman project that he was doing mm. with the youth um but later on he was on one of my albums we co-wrote a track on uh, London Unsound mm. um called My Soul but I mean yeah, and, and I got to know him, and he was, he's a lovely bloke. I mean, he was incredibly supportive, and he came to see us at the Royal Albert Hall um, in 2001, and he, he continued to be supportive after that. But, I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, uh, Jeff Beck, he covered one of the tracks from Beyond Skin, mm -hmm. so, uh, called Nadia, and he, he made it his own as well. He's, he did a beautiful version of it that was uh, amazing on the guitar, and he performed that with us as well. Um, and, you know, all these people, I mean, Sinead O'Connor was really nice, you know, lovely person. I, I 
was blown away. I mean, they they just came over. I, I didn't really ask anyone to come over. It was kind of more. It was more. I mean, you know, they were very welcome, but it was kind of more a case of. Um, uh, I can't even remember how they get in touch. It might have been that they got in touch with my manager or mm-hmm. or me at the time and uh, and asked if they would, you know, if I'd be up for doing something. And it was just very nice, you know, that all these people who I admired and thought of very highly were were also in, uh, interested in doing something. That was really cool. I love that they they were drawn in by the fact that you're making music that's so authentically different. Thank you. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's it's kind of weird to try and figure. I mean, I I was equally shocked and surprised by a lot of this. You know, I remember when Paul McCartney first called me up and um, and uh, you know and said he was coming over. I just kind of like all of us were frantically hoovered. <laughs> um, kind of, yeah, kind of, there, there were these kind of cardboard boxes which are, which I'd pulled electronic equipment out of, which was kind of sitting outside my room. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I need to get rid of all this crap. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, it's kind of. So I, I I suppose though it was, yeah. And and the weirdest thing I I think I've said in a few interviews. I mean, um, Paul McCartney arriving uh, there was. Um, was interesting because when he came up into my uh, literally into my bedroom he he looked around and he just said oh i i remember um and he put me at ease which i really yeah. respect about yeah. him he said oh i remember being living in a place like this and i wrote a, a track called scrambled eggs um in a place like Aww. this I'll, I'll play it to you and it turned out to be yesterday so the first thing he did <laughs> was sit down pick up my guitar and play yesterday on it and say oh it to my me, god which is quite incredible so that i'm like was... oh this is the greatest track of the 20th century god. <laughs> now actually uh, serenading me with which was quite imagine if he'd just come in and gone oh could have hoovered I I love the idea of not hoovering like what a power play (laughs) I ain't doing nothing for you you've worked with many superstars and your next uh, phonographic memory is uh, a a definite superstar which is Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan Must Must and the Massive Attack remix I I mean this uh, personally is one of my favourite remixes of all time I just think it's a a wonderful piece of work. Tell us about how this track got in your life. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I was, um, I remember, I mean, this is from an album that he, that Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan did with Michael Brook on Real World. I mean, when I heard it, I think, I, I can't even remember how I heard it. I might have heard it on the radio or at someone's house or something like that. Mm. I've got no recollection of the first time I heard it, but it just became so ingrained in my world after the after hearing it that it was never, you know, I I, I played it, almost every day for ages you know it was yeah. just such a fantastic and I was just blown away by the production of that entire album from Michael Brook as well um, on um, uh, on Must Must the the main uh, I mean that's the title of the album as well as the track that I like um, well, I liked all of them they were incredible but um, but yeah I, I thought it was really it was really innovative it, and it had a kind of dubby sound and at the time I was listening to um, some of the stuff on the On You Sound label from Adrian Sherwood, mm. which was um, which I loved, you know, all that kind of dub reggae. I mean, that included bands like African Head Charge and um, Tack Head and uh, and um, Dub Syndicate and some amazing bands, um, you know, that I that I really liked. And that kind of sound that was very dubby, I was into. So when I heard Massive Attack doing that, um, you know, uh, with with Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan's voice. I mean, I wasn't really aware of Nus- uh, of Massive Attack at the time, and they hadn't they hadn't really kind of come to the fore in the way they did um, with Blue, uh, you know, afterwards with Blue Lines and um, yeah. and obviously with um, uh, Protection and Mezzanine. You know, those albums became you know obviously seminal albums, but they were they were the, my favorite albums of the decade of the nineteen nineties. So I 
I think, you know, the combination of one of my great heroes, Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. I mean, you know, this is a man who Jeff Buckley said was his Elvis, um, mm. you know, and, mm. and Jeff Buckley actually even tried to sing in front of a live crowd one of Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan's voice uh, uh, songs in Urdu and, yeah. um, you know, tried to get the crowd to clap along who were totally confused and <laughs> didn't really understand what was going on. But, um, but you know, I, I think he... He engendered incredible admiration from almost everyone he met or who heard his voice. I mean, you know, his voice is is so um, transcendent that it actually transcends all geographical barriers. I mean, for example, it was and and genre barriers. I mean, it was used in films like Natural Born Killers. Um, his voice was used in Last Temptation of Christ. It was used in um, it was used in uh, Bandit Queen by Shaka Kapoor. It was it was used in so many different contexts and. Um, you know, and also Dead Man Walking, um, you know, the, the very famous track with uh, Eddie Vedder, which is mind-blowing, uh, Face of Love. Um, you know, the, he, he was somebody who, you know, really genuinely um, could transcend every boundary going and at the same time keep the traditional quality of Sufism um, and Kavali intact. Um, he was an innovator within the form of Kavali in that he was the first really to... Uh, bring prominence to the use of sargams within that folk form mm-hmm. so uh, which i mentioned earlier the sargams and he he was the one who kind of really got that down more than anyone else so i think um an extraordinary uh, musician and singer on every level i mean he played the harmonium which um, which you hear mm. on on the remix as well and massive attack really i think um did justice to his Thanks. sound because they captured his essence and his spirit so beautifully. I mean, I really admire the way Massive Attack have got an incredible sensitivity to how they bring through emotion, feeling, um, so many layers of, of sound. Um, and they, they do it in such a way that's so incredibly elegant sonically. So, yeah, I mean, the production on, on that was, was, for me, it was a game changer in terms of how I approached production afterwards and, and what I wanted for, to hear from production as well. talk about it sort of being universally like just cutting through and, and you know whatever you're into it it's this beautiful thing that comes in front of you and you, you kind of it's really hard to resist to be quite honest mm. I mean I heard it it was about 1990 I'm sure 
and we were raving at the time and it was you know we'd be banging out techno all night and then come the sunrise things would slow down you put your odd things on you know a little bit of dub syndicate here and there and all that kind of thing yeah and i can remember the first time the dj dropped that and everyone stopped you know you know these are mad kids on pills dancing all night and then they stopped and just stared with mouths open and then slowly started swaying into that groove and you're so right about the way that massive attack managed to keep everything that Ali Khan was trying to to bring out of him but then they managed to translate it through the production because it's it's got a heavy you know dubby feel and mm. and and you know really shifts some air on a big system and it's it is an uncompromising track i just remember everyone's stopping dead and looking at each other and going what is that <laughs> I, I totally agree i mean that's that's the thing it, it always had that response from people but i mean one thing i'd add to that and that's you know i totally get that everything that you're saying is 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 that i mean massive attack the the thing is that they really understood how to work with with something that was so culturally different intuitively mm. i mean they did mm. this so well because actually you know the way they don't crowd the the sound of Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan's voice and and his expression. They don't crowd it with loads of sounds. They frame it in a way that is mm. fantastic, and that's what also Michael Brook does on this album very effectively. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's the case when you sometimes hear people trying to fuse things, and I say fuse in inverted commas because I kind of think fuse is um, something where. For me, I, I've never really liked the idea of fusing things. I think you you kind of just find your way into expressing an idea and then you draw um, on different cultural influences. Um, but it's kind of this this idea of how he managed to, you know, how in this track you have an incredible blend of um, of sound and, and voice that just works and, and yet does not in any way disrespect the culture or the tradition uh, yeah. from which Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan's, you know, come. And I think it was the same with uh, Michael Brook. And I think, it, he, you know, Massive Tack also retained that feel. When you talk about framing things, I think that, that really hits the nail on the head because when fusing things can often mean confusing things, you know, you like, there was a big thing in the 90s where they would just try and, oh, I've got a sitar and a tuba player and let's put a hip-hop beat <laughs> under that and we'll see how we go, you know. Yeah. And a lot of that music... Um, you know, it burned brightly in a few clubs for a week or two and then was forgotten immediately. Hmm. But I think uh, something like this must must mix. What's great about it is there's just tons of space all around it. it yeah. It's like it's like everyone's standing back from the main act and they're adding things around the outside. But then, like you said, they never detract from it. They never, never crowd it out of the mix. You always know you're listening to... Um, Ali Khan, you know, you always know that that's that's the center of the whole mix, and the the rest of it, it's kind of just, I don't know, highlighting it or or putting something around the outside of it, but it definitely doesn't try and change what it is or squish it in with other things or make it more culturally acceptable by forcing a more familiar culture on it. Yeah, exactly. Well, very well put. Absolutely right. Should we move on to your third phonographic memory then, which is, um, I seem to remember chatting to you about this uh, Indeed. this track yeah. before. <laughs> this is a, a firm favourite of yours, uh, a Miles Davis track. Talk to us about this one. Well, I, I do remember our conversation. I remember us talking about, um, you know, music, which was music of the night. Yes. And, and we talked to specifically about that. And I remember you talking about that too. 
and uh, this is one of those tracks that always I always associate with nighttime and um, you know images of neon lights and at night or, or through the rain and kind of you know I, I've got this kind of very strong image in my mind and part of it is from driving through um, up to London or from London um, when I was a, when I was a kid when I first heard it when I was about eight years old and um, and just being uh, blown away by the the blend of sound uh, from my dad's um, my dad's I think it was his cassette player um, in the car um, and and the uh, and the sound of the rain and then looking at the way the traffic lights reflected on the road through you know on the water and the road and and thinking wow this is just perfect I love this mood mm -hmm. you know and it was just um, and I remember it struck me so powerfully when when I was a kid and um, and it stayed with me and I can't kind of think that's kind of one of the images that kind of got me into uh, film scoring as well it's just mm -hmm. in my mind but also in the um, you know looking at that through the night because I think the sound of um, of Miles Davis's trumpet was the sound of the night and again interestingly you know we're talking about space um, you know, with uh, Bill Evans playing on this, with the with the harmonies. Um, I mean, you know, we have incredible legends playing on this album, obviously, mm. uh, particularly John Coltrane and uh, Miles and uh, Bill Evans. But I mean, I think, you know, with the, with the sound, it's just amazing how his voicings would work on the piano. I mean, there's a lot that's been written about his uh, harmonic work, and um, it was inspired by. Uh, a book that was written about the Lydian mode um, and that was the case with both uh, Bill Evans and uh, Miles Davis is that they, they had this very uh, strong kind of harmonic uh, background to the making of the album but I think it's um, it's amazing when you hear again how open these chords are um, and they allow a lot of freedom in the way that the uh, you know we're, we're talking about um, uh, very specific types of uh, voicing that uh, Bill Evans would use in, in his piano playing and the trumpet just works so well over it and, and it's just so delicate how Bill mm -hmm. Evans gives so much space again to Miles Davis to find his voice within this. I mean every single line that Miles Davis plays is iconic on this track and it's just you know from the first from the first notes you you remember this solo for the rest of your life you know um his solo his his first opening solo and it's kind of um it's just yeah i, I can't ever forget you know my first response to hearing this which was yeah. um just uh just i just thought it's the most beautiful thing i'd ever heard
I just find it interesting thinking about you as a kid and your dad putting this on in the car and you immediately getting it because you know I don't want to um I don't want to cast aspersions about people's kids but certainly myself I don't think I would have gotten this when I was a, a young kid and we've talked before on this podcast to people sort of tentatively introducing music to their own children and making sure that they pick stuff that will be accessible and translate well but your dad went straight in there with So What by Miles Davis and and you got it. I mean, you must have been a, quite a precocious <laughs> kid to, to understand it or just the fact that it translated so instantly, you know, you didn't have to, to try or... I mean, that, that's quite unusual, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I mean, I, the thing is that I remember, I, I don't... You know, it's like when I first heard the blues scale, I, I saw somebody play the blues scale and I thought that is amazing mm. what is that how's he doing that how's he he's just playing up and down that scale but it sounds incredible mm. and then he's moving around that scale and I, I couldn't I couldn't really get in my head how somebody could just do that you know and and I it was the same with this I remember just thinking these sounds are just so stunning I don't understand it in that I couldn't understand it technically at that mm. point um but I just knew that all those sounds were very beautiful and mm. I I already was playing uh, quite a lot of classical piano, so I'd been playing classical piano since I was five. So mm. I was used to listening out for piano and um, and also uh, just kind of listening for different types of harmony and melody. So I, I suppose in that respect, I was already kind of... And my mum and dad were constantly playing music in the house, so mm. and my mum would sing all the time. So it was kind of, you know, I was, I was quite sensitive, which I didn't realise. I mean, I didn't know that any of this was unusual or... Or in any way kind of any different to anyone else. I mean, I was pretty introverted. And, you know, although I had two older brothers, they, you know, I kind of tended to do my own thing. Even when I was very young and I'd, I'd practice the piano in my own room or I'd just, you know, just be doing my own thing. And, and I didn't really, you know, it was just the mood of it. I just mm. found incredible in the same way as when I was, you know, around the same age. I saw at my uncle's house when I was sitting around um he had they had the tv on and or it was something like that it might be a projector I can't can't remember but they had psycho on and they also had um uh, one of the spaghetti westerns on at one point and I remember just being blown away by those when I was a kid <laughs> but I mean I, it was like I was watching those at about 11 o'clock at night which I, I don't think I should have been awake but I was just kind of <laughs> that, that would definitely sitting. leave an impression yeah I mean I was well that at that time people weren't so hard on the idea that kids had to go to bed at a certain time and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, I literally was just kind of sitting there in awe of these kinds of films. And, and I think, you know, it, it's it's interesting because sound hit me in and music hit me in a way that I felt was quite liberating um, because it, it allowed me to explore emotions and, and feelings that I didn't understand at the time. But it, mm. it kind of gave a voice to, to those feelings. And, you know, I, I think... Um, I didn't really talk much about it. I just really liked it. So I remember going out and buying that album, you know, um, later on, you know, and, and just finding it um, absolutely fantastic. So it's just, um, yeah, it just struck me. I don't, I can't analyse it in the in saying that I I understood anything technically because I didn't, but I, I think I just responded to it. I, I just, I, I, I find that so, I mean, you're making me think about the first time. I mean, I'm a lifelong, well, I say lifelong, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, but I remember the first time, I was probably the same age, when my dad first put Bob Dylan on the car, and I was like, what is this? Oh, dad, his voice is awful, turn it off, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I was so kind of, uh, 
underdeveloped <laughs> compared to what you're <laughs> describing. You know, I was kind of unable in my immature brain to sort of appreciate this music, which I came to later. I just find it amazing how how it it uh, it, it struck you in that way as, as such a young kid. Well, um, actually, we're no different because I had the same response to Bob Dylan. Did, and did it was only that. later on that I got to like Bob Dylan. Well, that but makes was, me feel better. But it was like, I, I, I don't know, maybe if they'd put some Miles Davis on when you were that age. You That's a good point, that. actually. Yeah. It's my parents' fault. It's a good I point. Did, I, I often, I think, parents. often you get that thing <laughs> yeah. when uh, it's, it's easier to accept something instrumental than it is to accept someone's voice when you're young. Yeah. Mm, you yeah, know, if you don't like the sound of what they're saying or how they're saying it, that can be really difficult. But if it's mm. if it's kind of just instrumental, there's an abstraction that goes on that kind of allows you perhaps to let it in a little bit more. It's a bit, bit less intimidating because it doesn't sound like it's coming direct from another human. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I mean, I, 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 and it is interesting that you say that about Bob Dylan because I had this, I genuinely had the same response. I didn't, I didn't warm to his voice until quite a bit later. And then I, you know, obviously understanding or getting to know more about his poetry and, and, and lyrics and, and um, you know, Joan Byers and, and all that history, you know, um, I mean, really kind of contextualizing everything. Um, and then also just kind of appreciating what he, you know, his work a lot more. And, and I mean, I, for example, at that, Around I think nine or ten, I remember loving uh, all along the Watchtower from Jimi Hendrix and yeah. not knowing yeah. it was anything to do with Bob Dylan. So it's kind of um, so yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting how how we take things in. Yeah, yeah. Bob Dylan, not not for kids, evidently. <laughs> I, I love his voice now. I, I have yeah, to same. say, I, yeah. I, I I think his voice is great. I don't know. Obviously, just something something about it struck me the wrong way. It sounds like you were um, picking up a lot of music, you know, around the house from your, from your parents. It was like they they were really quite. I'm going to say instrumental, which is a terrible choice of words. Quite instrumental in in you know bringing this to you. Did they play like a quite a wide variety of stuff, or were they quite specialised in what they're into? What how was how was that kind of introduction to music? Well, it was it was kind of I mean it was mainly my dad who who had the um, you know had a big record collection, and so he would play a lot of Cuban music. He loved um, great crooners like Sinatra and Nat King Cole and so on. Mm. Um, I also kind of was listening to. A lot of, um, you know, he had flamenco albums. He was a big fan of flamenco. Mm. And Indian classical music was something my mum was more into. Um, and then she liked a whole range of music as well. Um, but then my brothers were playing a lot of rock and soul. Um, you know, my eldest brother was more into people like Marvin Gaye. And then my my other brother was kind of more into Led Zeppelin and, and The mm. Doors and stuff like that. So I was kind of hearing all that. And then on top of that, I'd have... Uh, a daily kind of diet almost of Radio Caroline which was on all the time and then you know my um in in one of one of our rooms in my brother's room and um I remember uh on Sunday uh Sunday Sundays at 6 30 in the evening I'd be listening to um uh to these personal top 30s that people would send into Radio Caroline and um which was pirate radio station and mm. I absolutely loved some of the things that people would be playing because they had no again there were no boundaries people would just play whatever they liked and it wasn't like okay i'm going to play a certain type of music they would just literally be sending in personal top 30s that they they felt that they you know music of music they loved and so i was hearing that quite regularly so i think i had a lot of um 
you know there there, were, there weren't many boundaries in the way I was listening mm. to music it wasn't like a, and and again I was hearing a lot of different music when I went to school um you know that I kind of grew up during the whole punk revolution as well um and so you know that that happened when I was 13 the the whole punk thing happened in 77 I was kind of you know I I was 13 years old at that time and and just thought wow this is amazing and then joined a you know punk band at the school and got into all that kind of side of things so there were so many different uh, influences and I didn't even know that this was unusual. You know, there were yeah. there were so many different kind of um, uh, bands and uh, musicians that I was exposed to. Well, it's really served you so well because, you know, the, the, the actual breadth and, and, and depth of the music that you've produced over the years obviously shows that, you know, you can... You can hear the good in each each type of music and, and, and find the thing and somehow manage to extract what you need from each of those genres and put them into context in films and in, in, in your own albums. It's, it's, it's obviously stood by you as you've stood by it. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, what's coming up next for you? I mean, I, I presume, like, seeing as you're so prolific, I would imagine that lockdown put the kibosh on many, many projects that you had on the back burner is that the case and have you had to sort of redirect your your musical intentions well i mean it did in that um, we'd been touring a lot and mm. um you know obviously you know it's been crazy we haven't we we uh, i mean we were um, playing a lot of live shows and so on but i mean but having said that i mean i i made my album my new album immigrants um, mm. during that time for sony and that was uh, that was a great opportunity um, I, I also kind of was able to continue scoring um, some documentaries and, and um, a couple of films. There's a film that's actually about to come out, um, which is called Settlers, um, which is actually, I think, coming out in Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was, that was kind of set on Mars. I did that. And then there's, but on top of that, I kind of, uh, I produced Jules Holland's uh, latest album, which has come out later this oh, yeah. year, which was... Um, a lot of fun and, and amazing. Oh my God, the people who are on there, they're all, you know, <laughs> like Herbie Hancock is on there, oh, wow. Booker T's on there, Gregory Porter's on there. You've got uh, Jamie Callum, you've got um, Lang Lang, who I wrote a part wow. for with, uh, with, with um, Jules. Tom Jones is on there. You've got, I mean, it's it's unbelievable the people he's managed to get. Yeah, he's got a lot of mates. His phone book to be must fair. be bulging. He, he will have accumulated a lot of high-profile pals over <laughs> yeah. the years. Yeah, well, <laughs> and we do get on very well, and he's yeah. a lovely guy. But um, but yeah, I mean, so so that that was interesting. And then and and then at the moment, you know, I've, I've been scoring a, a film. Um, I'm doing another TV series. I mean, it's it goes on. I've been very lucky, and and uh, you know, also uh, was I'm I still am the chair of the PRS Foundation, so. Yeah. We did a lot of work to try and help out. Um, we had the hardship fund with PRS for Music and the mm. Members Fund, and we uh, we put together a hardship fund, uh, which I also did a gig at home for um, with some band members, and we we managed to do a, a concert that we put out, um, which actually was to raise money for musicians who were struggling. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a busy time in lots of ways. In that I I always stay busy, and so. It was uh, I was one of the lucky ones in that respect. I I kept going and uh, and things weren't so bad. But yes, I did. I had to put back my tour. I had to keep putting it back. Now it's happening next mm. year. Um, but we're still playing the Royal Albert Hall again this year. So yeah, can't complain too much. Amazing. And uh, in terms of, um, I mean, do you feel obliged to sort of reflect what's happened over the past eighteen months in the music you, you're making for yourself? Has that been a source of inspiration for you? 
Well, I, I guess, um, you know, it's with the with the album Immigrants. I mean, mm. it was actually a, um, really it was kind of a, a, supposed to be a sequel uh, effectively to Beyond Skin. So I guess in the when I created Beyond Skin, I was going through a period of isolation where I was actually literally writing a lot of the album in my bedroom, you know, in, in that shared flat and just kind of did it that way. Um, in the same way, you know, with uh, with lockdown, I ended up writing a lot of the album like that. But but the difference was I was able to collaborate with people in that um, they would record sometimes their parts separately or we would find a space. I mean, I recorded with Iona Witter Johnson at Wigmore Hall, for example. We managed to do that live and stay within all the rules. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I was we were working carefully around the rules, but, you know, we managed to get things to work. And it was the same with Jules's album and so on. So it was kind of, you know, always making sure we stuck to whatever rules there were, but at the same time, you know, uh, trying to keep going as musicians and keep that creative spirit. Because I think there's a lot about lockdown that could could have very easily robbed uh, robbed me and other people of of that creative um, spark. Because it does it does it did feel very oppressive, and I I think it was particularly unfair on a lot of musicians who. You know, there was it was kind of a triple whammy from Brexit, from streaming, and from the pandemic. You know, mm. uh, where a lot of um, musicians just were unable to to get anything. They couldn't get live work, and then you know anything recorded. You know, the streaming side just wasn't paying enough, and you know, so it it was very difficult. Um, you know, for a lot of people. Mm. I, I think some people I've spoken to found it incredibly creatively inhibiting, and other people sort of relished the opportunity to come off tour. Uh, or whatever it was they were doing and, and managed to sort of um, put the stress of it in a box and create some music that's really beautiful. So it's interesting to hear uh, certain projects that, that have sort of come about over the past 18 months or so. Thank you so much for sharing your phonographic memories with yes. us. It's been such a pleasure oh, to you. chat to you. Oh, nice. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah I really enjoyed talking to you too. Thank you. It's been really lovely, meeting. Thanks so much. spent a lot of time with us now. You've listened to myself and Anne talk sincerely and honestly about our thoughts, views and experiences working in this great music industry. Well, I think it's about time that you paid us back. I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about cash, nor even time. All we want is fame because we're power hungry people. Please tell someone about what goes around podcasts. Send them a note. Stick it under their door. Phone them up in the middle of the night and suggest they browse iTunes and just stick in what goes around. See what happens. Write us a review. Do something for us because we've given you everything we've got. Mm -hmm.